Praise God. What an amazing time of, of worship. Thank you so much, um, Marcus and the whole team here. Let's give God a hand clap. Amen. Wow. That's, uh, that was beautiful. Very powerful stuff. So, hey, really pleased to see all of you here. Thanks for gathering with us at the bridge. Um, always good to have um, Always good to have you here and to worship with us and to be present with us, especially during this time of year. Love the holidays, love the Christmas time, uh, love seeing everyone dressed in red, all right? A little bit of red for the Christmas. Got my Christmas tie. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next, now, next week is Christmas Eve, so you, you got to bring it next week, right? I mean, lots of Christmas stuff. I'm talking the Santa hats, everything. I mean, you got to come, uh, you know, with it, so... Um, again, great to have you here. Great to have everyone. Um, again, keep in mind just some of the things that are coming up as we hit the new year. We're, we got another worship nights coming up in Marcus, and we have a whole evening of doing worship, uh, very similar to what you experienced uh, here this morning. So if you're a regular attender, you've seen that and experienced that before. If you're not, if this is your first time and you want to experience more, come to our worship nights uh, in January. I forget what the exact date is. The, the 28th? Yeah, January 28th, that's a Saturday night, so we'd love to have you be a part of that. Also, I haven't uh, had a chance to be up here and just say a real quick thank you to those of you who uh, were a part of Pack the Force. How many of you were at Pack the Force? Did any of you? Yeah, I see a few hands. Good, they're timid. Um, awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, if you gave to Pack the Forest, thank you very much, but continue to give because we got a little bit more to knock out before the, I'd love to do it before the end of the year. So um, amazing time at Pack the Forest. We had the largest group of volunteers ever and uh, did a lot of cool stuff together. So thank you guys very, very, very much. Uh, same, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. It was a, lot, it was a ton of fun. Um, and the meals will go out, and all the backpacks that we filled together will go out and serve uh, people who are in, in deep need, all right? So let's, uh, let's pray, and we're going to finish up our series from the book of Philippians this morning. Father God, it is good to be in this place. It is good to gather with your people. It is, it is just such a powerful time to raise our voices in worship to you, and we are so grateful and so thankful for the privilege and freedom that we have to do that in this place. But Father, not far from our hearts and minds are those who perhaps don't have the same freedoms that we do and really don't even have the same resources that we do. And so while we praise your name and we honor you in the comfort of this place, we also think of those who are in desperate places right now, especially those who are the most vulnerable, children in particular. Father, at this time of Christmas, when we think of the one uh, God child, may we also think of the other children, and may we do what we can to relieve their suffering and their pain. And wherever it is, Father, that we see suffering and pain, especially right now, may we extend the hand and the heart of Jesus to those around us. May the warmth of Christmas truly be that, and may it touch hearts and lives and even our own. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we've been in a series on, uh, from the book of Philippians. I hope you've been kind of following along. Um, we're going to get into chapter 3 today, but the, the, hard, the core message of the book of Philippians has to do with joy, has to do with joy. 
This time of the year, this time of the season, we think of joy. And it's not just sort of this sort of light, pretentious happiness, right? It's not, it's not like that person in your life who is the morning person necessarily. Some of you have morning people in your life. In my house, I'm the morning person. I'm the annoying, up early, making lots of noise, smiling. And as soon as I see you, I say, good morning. And then you want to hit me, right? That's, that's me. I'm that type of person. It's not that type of joy necessarily, although I think that can be part of it, that there's a certain sort of enthusiasm about life that you have. But Paul talks about something much, much deeper. It's far more profound than just, uh, just a light sort of happiness and um, enthusiasm. It comes from a place where he has a full, where he has a full confidence and assurance in what, in, what, in what God has done and the fact that God will protect him and be with him. Remember, the context is that Paul is imprisoned. It's sort of a unique prison experience. He's literally chained to the guard. He's in prison. He's, he's not free to do whatever he wants. And he's not sure about how things are going to turn out. So he actually writes to the Philippians to let them know that, hey, um, I, I love you. You're very close to my heart. He, he helped plant the church. He, he brought many of the people in this, in this young church to Christ. And so he has a pastor's heart for them. He cares about them very deeply. He says, I'm letting you know, because you guys have, they've helped him. They've, they've given money to his ministry. They've, they're concerned about him. And I just want you to know that, hey, whatever has happened to me, I'm going to be all right. And, and not only that, in, even in the midst of what's going on with me, I have a deep and profound joy that comes from an assurance of the reality of Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's all about. And, and I know, I know that I'm going to be okay. And I just wanted to let y'all know. And in fact, not only did I want to just let you know, I want you to understand what we can all learn from this because believe it or not, you're going to meet you're going to come up against some stuff. You're going, to be, you're going to be life head on. And it's not going to be fun. And it's not going to be nice. And it's not going to be pleasant. And you're going, to, you're going to wonder about your faith. And I just want you to know. I just want you to know. He talks about perseverance in here. And he says, I want you to continue to rejoice. Even in the midst of the stuff that you're going through. You know, the holidays, you know, and we all know this, as much as it brings a sense of joy and we, we anticipate time with family and we enjoy fellowship with friends and we enjoy the sort of the, we taking a step back from everything and, and doing some, some nice things, the holidays also bring with it reminders of pain, right, and loss and difficulties and grief. Because it very well may have been at the holiday time that something happened to you. And it, it, it stole your joy. So while everyone around you is sort of joyful and looking forward to the holidays, you're just kind of like, uh, uh, really? Really? Or maybe it wasn't even around the holidays. It was just something so, so profoundly painful that it just, it just, It's even more profound during these times because maybe you slow down to think about it. 
Uh, our family suffered a loss years ago, my wife's brother, and um, Christina, I was talking to, we were talking this week and uh, talking about her mother, my mother-in-law, and just saying, you know, she, Christina made the remark that she's, you know, she's doing all right. She's doing all right. Now, we didn't lose Christina's brother uh, at Christmas time. We lost him uh, in the early spring. Um, but the pain sticks, and the grief is very real. And though this was years ago, it still resurfaces. And if there's, a, there's the potential there, as Paul is trying to communicate to the Philippians, there's the potential there that when your circumstances change or when circumstances from the past that brought you pain resurface, there's the potential that it could steal your joy. You could get off track and begin to forget about the profound sacrifice of Jesus and what he has done for you. Because at the end of the day, he says, that's all we really got. That is, the, that is the greatest gift that we could ever receive, and that's all we got. All this other stuff may not be here, and this is what you've got. He says, so he says, hang on to that. Hang on to that. So as we dive in, we're, we're getting towards the end. This will be the last message in, in the series. We're going to finish up, um, and then we'll do a Christmas message next week and, and so forth. But uh, then as we start a new year, we'll start a new series. But I wanted to take a look at, at chapter 3. There's four chapters. We won't get to chapter 4. But chapter 3 begins to set up the end of the entire message that Paul has for the Philippians. So if you'll go with me to chapter 3 of the book of Philippians, we'll look at the first 11 verses. And I'll break it up so I'm not reading the whole thing in its entirety. But uh, we'll take a look at it and, um, and begin to understand a bit more about it. All right. So... Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So he says this, finally, finally, right? Don't you love it when preachers say, and I'm coming to a close, and we just keep on talking. So that's the way, that's the way Paul is here. He's a typical preacher. He says, finally, but he has a whole other chapter yet that he's going to write. But he's moving towards the conclusion. And so these are the things that Paul would have us to understand as he's wrapping up, these are the final thoughts he wants to leave with us. Finally, my brothers, here's that word, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. So this has been a theme. He's repeated himself over and over. He said, but that doesn't bother me. It's worth hearing again. I'm going to repeat myself. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you, he says. Verse um, Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put, on no, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. All right, so pause, pause right there. The other thing that was happening in the Philippian church, besides their worry and concern for Paul was the reality of people who were disturbing the church. People who were coming along and, and trying to communicate to the young Philippians, particularly those who were uh, converted from being in the Gentile world to becoming uh, Christians. There were those who wanted to say, hey, you have to adhere to all the aspects of the law. In the same way us good Jewish 
boys and girls grew up and we understand the law, you need to adhere to every aspect of the law, including this idea of circumcision. You're going to have to be circumcised. Now, I mean, that's sort, of a, that's sort of a bait and switch, isn't it, right? Paul comes along. He introduces you to Jesus, talks about grace and forgiveness and cleansing, washing away of your sins. You become a part of the church and the fellowship of the believers, and somebody else starts whispering in your ear about this thing called circumcision you got to do. Oh, wait a second. That's a change. That's, that's, a, that's a big deal there. I don't, really, we have to do that? And so, so yeah, so that was causing a bit of a disruption. And furthermore, it's not only that you have to get circumcised like the rest of us did, but you have to follow all the Sabbath laws and all the dietary laws, and you're going to have to, you're gonna have to radically alter the way. In fact, you have to do it, and you better do it well. You better do it well, or else it really doesn't count. You got to do it, and you got to do it right. Later on, Paul calls himself a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were known, the Pharisees were known for meticulous, meticulous keeping of the law. And so he, I mean, look, again, what, what he's talking about here is that these people placed a burden on these new Gentile believers that was not just this sort of, you know, comply. It was this matters, and it matters in a big way. You have to do this. You are obligated to do this in order for in order for this thing to really count, that's what he says. Paul calls them dogs, though. He calls the people who come in and begin to agitate things, he calls them dogs. He calls them a name. He calls them the mutilators of the flesh, referring to this idea of circumcision. Paul had, he did not mince words when it came to these people who were causing this confusion about what the gospel was causing this confusion to the extent that it would steal a believer's joy. That, that his people, that the people who had come to Christ could not uh, rejoice and be glad and know the, know, the, um, know the peace of a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's continue on. He says, um, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He says, we're not, we're not gonna put any confidence in the flesh. And those who tell you to put confidence in the flesh and all the law and all the stuff that you have to do, don't listen to them. They're dogs. But he says, look, I have, I have reason to put confidence in the flesh. And then he goes into these words. He says, um, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised, there it is, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, here it is, he says, a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. When you entered the workforce, how many of you work? I mean, raise your hand, yeah, if you work, don't be ashamed. You work, when you enter the workforce, and I mean like you, you got like a real job, you weren't working, you know, like the job you had in, when you were in high school. You got like the real job and you have to show up on time and they, you have, you earn days off and vacation and you get a salary, you get a salary or, that, or something like that. Um, when you entered, or when you were 
attempting to get that job, you probably had to submit a resume, right? You had to come up with a resume. And the resume was basically your argument for, or your case for, the employer hiring you and the place their confidence in you that you can fulfill the job and affect the bottom line of the organization or the company that you work for. It was your resume. We all probably at some point have one or had one or, or dusting one off and, and make up one or something, right? We all have to deal with that. So essentially what Paul is doing here, essentially what Paul is doing here is sharing his spiritual resume. He's laying out for the people all the reasons he has for God to place, for God to place his confidence in Paul and what he's done. That's, at least that's kind of the, the, the thinking that's going on here. But he totally, he totally um, gets rid of that whole notion. He dismisses that whole idea. He says, if anyone has any reason to be confident in their own righteousness, in their own resume of what they've done, in their own religious heritage and background, I am the one. And he begins to list out this resume. And this is why God should place his confidence in me to achieve my righteousness. But he spends the next several verses totally tearing that apart. Here's the thing. You have a religious, you have a, you have a resume, you have a religious resume as well. Some of you born into this thing called Seventh-day Adventism. And you went through all the schools and you have done all the stuff and you speak our unique language. If we were to roll out your resume, you would be an impressive person, religiously. And Paul sort of implies and hints at the notion that you got to be very, very careful about your religious resume. Because at the end of the day, it may very well be the thing that steals your joy instead of brings you more joy. He continues on. Check this out. He says, but whatever was to my profit, whatever was to my profit, verse 7, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So at the same time, he rolls out all the reasons he should place confidence in himself and in the flesh. He comes along after that and he says, it is worth nothing. It is worth nothing. It's a profound and deep realization that not only Paul came to, but every last one of us has to come to understand. That though I was born into the right church with the truth, and I know it, and I can recite it, and they implanted in me lots of wonderful memory verses, and I can proof text any other person like nobody else. And even though I know everything there is to know, it really isn't worth it outside of knowing Christ Jesus personally. In other words, he's basically saying ritual does not equal righteousness. 
ritual, whatever they may be, whatever you've adopted from your heritage of faith doesn't necessarily equal righteousness. And if it does equal righteousness for you, it's not nearly enough righteousness to get you to the kingdom. The only righteousness that matters is Christ's righteousness. To attain the righteousness of Christ, must, one must be in a relationship with Christ. That's what he says. He says, whatever was to my prophet, all the things that sort of propped me up and made me look good or supposedly look good in the eyes of Christ, I consider them loss. He uses a much stronger word in verse 8, which I won't have time to get to, but he uses a much stronger word. The word translated in the NIV that I have here is rubbish, but it's actually the word dung or doo-doo. <laughs> and there's another word. that I mean, it's a strong it's a strong word. He's not just saying that my righteousness is worthless. He's saying that my righteousness actually is quite revolting to me. Wow. Have we gotten there? Sometimes we still kind of patting ourselves on the back. I did good. I did good. Yeah. No. You're... Our call is into relationship. And he says, nothing else matters but knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing him. He said, for everything, I've, said, I've, I've lost everything else. Anything else to my prophet, I consider it a loss. It's rubbish. It's bad stuff. It's not only worthless, it's, it's revolting. I don't even want to be around it. I don't even want to see it. In fact, I'm going to fix my gaze. I'm going to fix my eyes on Christ because that is where my righteousness comes from. That is where my righteousness comes from. There's a passage in, um, in Romans, just real quick, and we'll, we'll begin to wrap it up here. Um, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Let's put it on the screen here real quick. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this as Paul in another letter that he wrote talks about this idea of righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Christ is the source of our righteousness. But notice the relationship word that Paul uses over there in Romans. Trust. Trust, trust. Confidence is another word for trust. Who places their confidence, whoever places their confidence in Christ, they are then credited with righteousness. And you can go all throughout the Bible to find lots of people who had that realization that it's not about my ritual, it's not about my religion. It's ultimately about coming to know the one who is the source of righteousness. Now, that right there, uh, another word that is, that is used, that, or the word confidence, where it's used, it's used a couple of times in this section that we're looking at, the word confidence, actually means to be persuaded. To be persuaded. So really, as we come into relationship with Christ, a lot of the work of the Spirit of God is to begin to persuade us to turn away from us and our own righteousness towards Jesus and his righteousness. 
to begin to say like Paul, I want to do nothing else but know him and the source of righteousness so that I can have it applied to me and so that I can rejoice in that reality. If you find yourself sometimes not having joy, and I'm not saying you're emotionally not happy, but if you're questioning whether or not you have acceptance with Christ, that when he looks at you, he sees, he sees someone who is good because of Christ. And you might want to take some time and think about where your focus is. You may have returned to the rituals of your faith, but you may have lost the Christ of that faith you will experience profound and deep joy when we are persuaded and confident in the reality of a Jesus who gives us his righteousness and ultimately saves us. Let's pray. Father God, in this place I pray that if indeed the joy has left, if indeed there is a void of joy, I pray that as we fix our eyes on you, that that joy would return. I pray that as we would understand and become, be persuaded that our joy is ultimately found in you and your righteousness, that we would bask in it, that we would receive it, accept it, and with confidence believe it. So, Father, during this time, during this amazing time of the year, may we indeed experience the fullness of your joy, and may it run deep with us. We thank you for who you are and what you've done, and may we strive, and may we pursue you in a relationship, Lord, so that we indeed might know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.